0: sermon in Samuel for uh, a bit. Uh, Blake is going to be preaching for us next Sunday morning, uh, and then I'll be switching over for a a series more appropriate to uh, Christmas on hope uh, for the month of December. Uh, This morning, I'm going to read for us in just a moment from 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'll read the entirety of the chapter, and you can follow along in your bulletins or Bibles as you find most helpful for you. Uh, last week we didn't finish chapter twenty three of uh, of First Samuel, but just to let you know what was taking place there, there was a, a situation in which Saul was closing in on David. and it appeared in this case that there was not going to be a way out for David, that surely Saul was going to get him when reports come to Saul of the Philistines attacking another part of Israel so that Saul needs to break off the pursuit and go and chase after. Uh, the Philistines allowing David and his men uh, once again by God's providence to escape uh, from the hands of Saul seeking his life. We pick up then the story right after that, after David has gone to another place at this point. So here this portion of God's word, 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when David and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold, the Lord's anointed. Great God in heaven, we pray that we today would not be hearers only of this word, but that we would be hearers and then doers of it. We pray that you would embed it deep into our hearts, and that we, your people, would seek after you and your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If. I said to you right now, we've got a missing person alert. Your, your attention would immediately be drawn to it. You'd want to know, wait, what's going on? What's happening here? What's this person of whom we speak? One way perhaps to think of the Old Testament is as a giant missing person alert. As full as our Old Testament is, and it's big, and it's long, and it's dense, something or better to say, someone is missing in the Old Testament. When we were in the book of Judges preceding uh, here Samuel a few years back, I titled that series, Who is the Man? That's a quote from chapter 10 of the book of Judges, and it basically encapsulates the idea of that book that time after time when Israel would find themselves in trouble, in difficulty by one oppressor or another oppressor, they would be looking for the man who was going to deliver them, someone who was going to get them out of the dire straits in which they found themselves. We come then to the book of 1 Samuel, and the identity of of this missing person, the person who is going to be the deliverer, who is going to be the one to secure the welfare of the people of Israel, it becomes a little bit clearer in this book. Now several times over the course of this sermon series, I've taken us back to Hannah's song in chapter 2, and there's a very specific reason, and that is that it sets up for us kind of what is to come in the book. And let me read for you the last verse of her song because it helps us to see who is this missing person. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Now there's not a king when Hannah is singing this song. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah is singing, and the message is clear. If you're going to look for the missing person, here is another description of the missing person that amplifies everything that has come before. This missing person is going to be an anointed one. It's going to be an anointed king. Look for that one to provide the deliverance. And of course, in time to come, in short order, Hannah's son, Samuel, would anoint first Saul and then David to be king in Israel. The anointing was appointed by God and intimately connected with this idea of anointing, which isn't new to the book of 1 Samuel. You can go back, especially in the book of Exodus, and see all the anointing that took place with the the articles that were involved in the tabernacle with the priests that were part of the tabernacle, but embedded in the idea here of this anointing is that the thing that was anointed or that the person who was anointed became set apart, became in in a, in a way sacrosanct. You couldn't just touch them. They had gone from being a common thing or a common person to being holy unto the Lord. And so you have to be careful with holy things. There are consequences to mistreating holy things, and that's the subject of our text today. How do you treat the Lord's anointed? I want us to consider this text today then on a couple of levels, all of which I think are important for us to understand actually what's taking place here. In the first place, what I want us to do is just kind of look at the his- history of this passage and see the historical import of the passage itself. Secondly, we'll look at the lessons for faith and life that are just full in and, and on display in the passage that is before us. And finally, we're going to look at kind of the, the messianic undercurrents that are all the way through the passage that we're looking at today. So first of all, we consider the historic playing of the passage, what is taking place here. In the book of First Samuel, as we have traced it, Israel has been constituted as a monarchy. And as a monarchy, it now has an earthly king. In an ideal, and, and if it was perfectly fulfilled, this earthly king should reflect the will and the presence even of Yahweh amongst his people. The king should do what God instructs him to do. But there is a perennial question that comes up, particularly with earthly monarchies. Sometimes it comes up acutely, sometimes it's just in the background. But the question is, who is the rightful king? To whom does the kingship actually belong? Now, as we know, looking ahead and we know the story, David is going to be the king of Israel. The question in years to come is whether or not David is the legitimate king of Israel. That he is the king is not debated. Whether that was legitimate or not, or whether he is a usurper is the question. Israel will ask, did David ascend to the throne by his own volition by violence given the fact that Saul appears to be the one who was appointed and anointed to the office and one would expect the line of kings to come through Saul and not through David first samuel then serves historically to show to israelites in years to come two things one the legitimate development of kingship within Israel, a kingship that would exist underneath of the priests and the prophets and would take its guidance from the priests and the prophets in Israel. We know that there was all sorts of sin on the part of the people involved when they requested a king. We also have seen how providentially God had determined that there would be a king in Israel. And so 1 Samuel assures. Israelites in the future, yes, kingship was of the Lord. This was part of God's sovereign plan, even though the hearts of men were warped as they went into the desire to get a king. But secondly, the book of 1 Samuel is designed to show us that David and his line is the true and legitimate royal line, not Saul and his line. Think about the book and think about what we have seen thus far far. We saw, as kingship developed, we saw the anointing of Saul, but then we are clearly shown the sin of Saul and the rejection of Saul by the Lord. Next, we see God saying, I'm seeking a man after my own heart. You, prophet of God, Samuel, you anoint this one, David. Anoint this one, and we see his rise into this position of authority throughout the book. Thus far in the story of David as David has come in, the next thing that we see is how from the very first meeting that we read about between David and Jonathan, we see Jonathan acknowledging David's coming kingship. Now we can look at the story of David and Jonathan and we've done this uh, from, from the pulpit and it's been done a lot of times. We can look at it as a story of friendship, of two men who had similar views of life, of faith and bonded themselves together. But it's much more than that. Jonathan is the rightful heir, if one goes by heredity, of the kingdom. He's the one who should have the kingdom. And so there's a question in future Israel, shouldn't Jonathan have been the king? Shouldn't Jonathan have been the king, not David? And so very clearly, we're shown in 1 Samuel, no, every time Jonathan and David interact, Jonathan acknowledges from the giving of his robe at the very first meeting that they have to the words that precede this chapter in chapter 23, where Jonathan says to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. There's the testimony in Scripture. You've got it. You have the question, what about Jonathan? Jonathan, maybe the word is not abdicate, but anyway, Jonathan says, no, 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 I'm next to you. You are the king. Now, as we come to this particular passage, we see other critical elements that formulate this idea of the Davidic kingship. First of all, this passage assures us that David doesn't use violence to seize the kingship even when it is literally dropped into his lap providentially. He won't resort to violence to do it. And and the passage has Saul affirm that reality. David, that's right. That's right. You are innocent of my blood. You've not sought after this kingship through any kind of coup and through any kind of violence. Secondly, in the passage, we see that instead of despising Saul or despising kingship and Saul's kingship, David honors and respects the person and position of the king as the Lord's anointed. My Lord is the Lord's anointed. And then there's a capstone. There's a capstone here to this Wondering, is he the legitimate king or not? And the capstone is found in verse 20 from Saul's lips. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That's the final word. It is now beyond contestation because it is secure from the lips of the one who would be the heir, Jonathan, you will be king, I will be next to you. And and if I read farther in uh, chapter 23 that I just took that quote from, the next line is, and my father knows this. But here in chapter 24, my father says it. Saul says it. You are the one who is legitimately going to be the king. So the historic importance of this chapter is the confirmation of the legitimacy of the Davidic line. David is of the tribe of Judah and the scepter And the ruler's staff derive from Judah through Judah, not through Saul, who is of the tribe of Benjamin. Genesis chapter 49, the line goes through Judah, and that's the legitimate line. So that's the historical import. But the event itself is just full of all sorts of important lessons for the life of faith. And you could, you could spend some time, you could find some ones other than these that I'm going to highlight. But let me highlight just a few for us. Kind of looking at this passage now in the category of how shall we then live? Okay, that on the historical plane, it's one thing. But now, how should we live reading this? Here's, here's my first one, first lesson. When faced with a dilemma, do the right thing. When faced with a dilemma, do the right thing, nod to Spike Lee there, who has a movie of that name that I've never seen, but do the right thing. David Samara points out that in verse 17 of the passage before us today, where Saul says to David, you are more righteous than I, that's a phrase that takes us back to Genesis once again, Genesis chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. You're more righteous, or she in that case was more righteous But anyway, this is the first time in the book where we find the word righteous being used. And righteous is a biblical word of no small import. So righteous in verse 17. But then if you were to look at 17, 18, and 19, the other word that is used there four times in those verses, though you can't see it in the English Bibles as easily, is good. Good and righteous. Righteous. And that is what is being stated here. By not killing Saul, by not listening to his men, who would have pressured him like, this is the time, we get to change everything. And the Lord has put it here. By not taking advantage of the situation, David has done what is right and what is good. In this situation, verse 17, you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. David is obeying Romans chapter 12 before it's ever been written. Right? Romans 12 says this: Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight. Of all That could be lifted right right out of this section of Scripture right there and put right here for us to obey that same command as well. In so doing, what David has demonstrated is the growing godly characteristic of righteousness and goodness. And that's the point of David's proverb, that he, he shares this ancient proverb in verse 13, out of the wicked, wickedness. And the corollary, which would kind of go along with this if we just played it out a little bit farther, but out of the righteous, righteousness. Please understand that Proverbs are not absolutes. They are faithful guides for us. But Jesus articulates essentially this exact same principle when he talks about healthy and diseased trees, he, he essentially says, You will know them by their fruits. Out of the wicked, wickedness, out of the righteous, righteousness, out of the bad tree, out of the diseased tree, bad fruit, out of the good tree, healthy tree, good fruit. Or the way i quoted it, or it's quoted on the front of your bulletin from Matthew 12, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. An evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. They kind of go together. The things that you see, the fruit that you see, generally speaking, comes from a heart, a life that matches that reality, whether it be good or evil. And so if Saul and David are two trees, then the lesson is crystal clear, right? It's absolutely crystal clear what David is saying here, what is taking place, but allow David to state it for us. I'm going to allow David to state it with, again, a verse on the front of your bulletin from 1 Samuel 26. What David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, do the right thing. Now, by the way, I'm just, let me just parenthesis here for a moment. First Samuel 26, from which I just uh, quoted, is a passage very similar to our passage today, wherein David is more proactive in creating the situation in which Saul's life is in his hands. Uh, once again, I'm not going to preach on it, so you can read it another time. There are some differences to it, but there's very similar principles in it. So do the right thing. Second lesson is that many times in life, we can't change things. And we just need to wait. We just need to wait. We need to trust God and wait patiently. Now, you and I are steeped in a culture that has taught us to change our circumstances, to change our situation, to change our stars, if you don't like them. If you don't like the hand you've been dealt, fold it. Throw it down, get the next hand, get the next set of cards, change your situation. That is part of the fabric of our being. And there's there's parts of us that should cherish it. And then there's parts of us that should be very careful of that reality. Because most people in history haven't had that option. Haven't had the option to say, well, you know what, I'm gonna change careers. I'm going to move, I'm going to fly off for vacation to a nice place, I'm going to get surgery to fix that, or I'm going to get more education to get the next opportunity. Most people haven't had that opportunity, and so they have learned to wait patiently. It looks like, when you look at this situation, it looks like Providence has arranged David's path to the kingship. Today, one thrust of his sword, from a man who is used to using his sword for us, that sounds really strange from a man who is used to using his sword, one thrust of the sword changes everybody's life in that cave. Everybody's. right? Path to kingship is set up immediately, and all it takes is kill that guy right now. He's helpless. But be careful. Providence is harder to read than it might seem. David's men are pushing him to act on this smiling providence. Right, David, 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 look at him. This is the time. Take my sword or let me go. I'll take care of it. Last week, those same men were reluctant. To go into battle against the Philistines. This week, they're anxious to get on with the changing of the guard. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's change things for all of us. This life, David, we're out in the wilderness. We're surviving on berries and stuff. This could all change. They take the promises of God and apply them to the moment, and they conclude This is the day. They're wrong. They have misapplied the promises, and they have misinterpreted the providence, and that still happens all the time. Christians are always tempted to look at a situation, the providences, the the things that exist, find a verse of Scripture that supports what they think is the very thing that must be the thing to do right now. Happens all the time. David has the clarity, the wisdom, the fortitude, the patience to say, guys, you've got it wrong. You think you're right. You think you've got the word on your side. You think you've got the promises of God on your side. You think that you're adding up all of these situational things and this must be God's will and you're wrong. I am not taking this into my own hands. How many times is hands referenced here? I'm not taking it into my own hands. We are going to bide our time. We are going to wait. We are going to endure this fugitive life a little while longer. And our text is clear. David can take this stance of passive endurance. David is not a pacifist but he can take this stance of passive endurance because he is convinced in the depths of his soul that God is judge. God is judge. And that's a real authority that belongs to God. The courts of justice in the heavenly places are true. They're honorable. The decisions are right. The sentences are fitting. David's conviction is that the Lord will judge. The Lord will avenge. And once again, we find David obeying Romans 12 before it's written. Once again, right? That's, this is exactly what Romans 12 says. Don't take it into your own hands. The Lord will avenge. And, and, and this becomes paradigmatic for the people of God. Listen, listen to the way Peter puts this in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. David and his men are suffering unjustly. He's not seeking Saul's life. Saul's accusing him of that, and Saul's going after him because he thinks that's the reality, but it's unjust. But it's a gracious thing when you endure that. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, that's what we've just seen, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you, for for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This is a paradigm, what is happening here. It was true for King David. And it's true for our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. It's true for us, the anointed of God, to wait, to wait patiently as we do the right thing. Third lesson, and this is just the last lesson at least that I'll draw from this one in terms of ourselves. Honor the King. Honor the king. That's a phrase from right above in 1 Peter 2 that I just read for you. Honor the king. David didn't merely forsake earthly justice. He didn't just say, well, justice is out the window, let's forget about justice. He's going to be the king and he's going to apply justice as much as he can. Going to seek to do justice in the world. But he knew when he looked at this situation that this was very unique. This isn't the normal situation, and that's not the normal guy who's in front of me. Saul is the Lord's anointed, and that changes things. We are called to honor everyone. First Peter, honor everyone, or, or Romans 12. To give respect to whom respect is due. We are called to honor the king. Those all derive out of an example exactly like this. David doesn't kill Saul, but he does cut off a piece of his robe. And we've kind of traced, as we've worked our way through 1 Samuel, the significance of clothing, the significance of the robe. It kind of represents the person. And so when David even does that act, the act of of cutting off the robe, we read in in verse 5 of our text, And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He realizes even that was disrespectful. Even that in and of itself was disrespectful to the anointed one. And then we see how David bows. He pays homage to him. He refers to himself as a single flea, as a dead dog. And in so doing... He's teaching us humility, humility and respect for others by showing all of us that we need to show honor to the Lord's anointing. And I'm going to allow that then to take us back to the beginning of the sermon and a brief and final point of the sermon. Saul doesn't seem worthy of this kind of respect, of this kind of honor. And and, and you kind of look at it and go, oh, okay, David, I, I get respecting people, but it's Saul. God has rejected him. Maybe you could too. It forces us, though, to kind of look through Saul. If Saul is initially the one who fills in the image of the missing person. The missing person is an anointed human king. And Saul kind of fills in that picture. We look at Saul and go, it doesn't quite work. The promises are kind of bigger than this guy. I'm hoping for more. So we look at David and we think, okay, well, David, maybe he's the one that we're looking for. Maybe he's the missing person. Maybe he's the anointing king. And he's all well and good in this chapter. But we know, if you just know the rest of the story, that you keep looking at David long enough and you're going to go, you know what? He does not quite work either. He hasn't quite fit all of the promises and all of the hopes we have. And so this event becomes chock full of messianic undercurrents, of, of just stories about Jesus. And I'm just going to mention a few of them. I'm not even going to comment on them. Uh, but just so we can appreciate how, how all of the themes... And the lessons and the streams, they come together in the ocean of love that is the kingship of Jesus Christ. You remember the first line of your New Testament? The very first words of your New Testament. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, who is the son of David. The Davidic line takes us to Jesus. A horn of salvation in the house of David. That's that's Zechariah's song, but it's picking up on Hannah's song. And the reality then, the angel saying to Mary that he's going to be given the throne of David. The Gospel of John concludes, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is, in other words, the Messiah the Lord's anointed. You're looking for the missing person. You're looking for the anointed one. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. That's the message of the New Testament. He's the one whom all should honor. Like David, Jesus was tempted to take a shortcut to the kingly office, right? One thrust of the sword, David, and that's it. We're all better. One bow of the knee, Jesus. One bow of the knee, and it's yours. All the kingdoms, all all the world, says Satan, I'll give them to you. Just bow. Shortcut. To glory. Like David, Jesus did what is right. And he waited. And he endured suffering and ill treatment without violence against men and against kings. The innocents. The righteousness and the kingship of David was proclaimed by, of all people, Saul. Saul is compelled to give testimony to the innocence of David. The innocence, the righteousness, and the kingship of Jesus is proclaimed by Pilate. All people. Even he must declare there's no fault in him. This man has done nothing wrong. Let everybody know. You're killing an innocent man. And Jesus, instead of calling down 12 legions of angels, restrains the violence restrains reaching out, restrains anything himself, and he restrains his men when they want to pull out the swords and say, forget this, the kingship is coming now. Off with your ear and the rest of you. He restrains it. And he entrusts his soul and his welfare and his kingship to his heavenly father while doing what is good. And in so doing... He left us a pattern, but not only a pattern. He received a name that is above every name, a title that is above every title, to be confessed by all that Jesus is the Lord anointed. He's the king of kings. And and so when we look at a passage like this, we see the history of it, we see the lessons of it, and may God help us to see Jesus as well so that we walk in his ways and in his goodness and his righteousness and we hear the command honor the king the lord's anointed help us lord help us because we all know how many times we have failed to do that it is our desire to be your faithful servants and more than that, your friends and your beloved children help us to be worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Grant us strength by the power of your spirit to live according to your word, to trust in you, to wait for you, to do that which is good, to honor the king. We pray this in your name. Amen.